Welcome to Lurking in the Fog, a podcast for those who seek to understand the criminals and tyrants that inhabit our world. Each episode, we host a guest who has entered the fog, encountered who and what lurked within, and lived to tell their tale. Our goal is to showcase how crime affects day-to-day operations, from something as simple as accidentally setting up a factory in the wrong neighborhood and having to deal with criminal groups to ensure the safety of employees and cargo, to governments using state actors to pressure, attack, and harm you in order to get their desired bribe or kickback. Crime operates in disguise. Rarely will it show its true colors in plain eyesight. Crime thrives in the gray. In situations where confusion and chaos are the norm, crime is king. As such, it lurks in the fog. I am your host, the Eurasian Eagle Owl, also known as the Tiger Owl. As a global investigator for Owl Consultancy Group, I will be guiding you through the fog and protecting you from what lurks within. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Lurking in the Fog. I'm your host, the Eurasian Eagle Owl, and I've got with me Scott Greytech today. Scott works for one of the coolest organizations out there, Transparency International, and he's built a career on spotting corruption, advocating against corruption, and just overall combating corruption. He is an anti-corruption attorney and the director of advocacy for Transparency International US. It is the oldest and largest anti-corruption organization in the world. And he works to fortify democracy in the United States and around the world by designing anti-corruption laws and policies, organizing ideology, ideologically inclusive coalitions and lobbying the US Congress and administration. In 2021, Transparency International helped craft and pass the most significant anti-corruption and anti-money laundering legislation in a generation, the Corporate Transparency Act. As a result, Mr. Greytack was named a top 100 lobbyist of 2021 by the National Institute for Lobbying and Ethics. Previously, he helped lead legislative, legal, and ballot measure initiatives on campaign finance, voting, foreign influence, ethics, and fair representation for several U.S. democracy organizations. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, I've I've got to ask you the question that I ask everybody. What took you into the fog, and what did you find lurking within? Yeah, so I got into anti-corruption work uh, because I, I started my my career out of law school as a public defender, actually. And uh, at the public defender's office, I lived in a state where judges were elected. And so when judges are elected, that means campaigns. And when you talk about campaigns, that means you have to go out and raise money. And in the state where I came from, you know, my my clients were by definition poor, right? They couldn't. They couldn't afford a legal defense, let alone to donate to the judges that would be hearing their cases. And the folks that could donate, you know, were were very much opposed to, uh, you know, criminal defense issues that I cared about and we fought for. And so I just saw the power of of money and of lobbying um, and the way that it can distort like our absolute justice system, you know, the, the, the most simple, um, you know, rule of law. Uh, 
um, institutions that we have in our country. And so that took me to, to try and get a wider view on the issue. And that eventually took me to to seeing how corruption works, not only in the United States. I worked in the domestic anti-corruption field here for about 10 years, um, but now abroad and to get a sense of, of the United States role in, in global corruption issues as a whole. So you, you said like judges being elected affects, you've got money, you've got campaign. In your time, besides that particular instance that just triggered your your curiosity and in a way your sense of justice, have you seen any other big cases that that just not have just reaffirmed your beliefs, but in a way have been shocking? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I see it a lot. And, you know, in particular, what really jumps out is the role of the United States in in some of these really devastating global corruption schemes. Give you an example. Uh, I'm from Ohio. Um, there was an Ohio based adoption agency uh, that gave bribes to social welfare officers and court officials in Uganda in order to you know, get recommendations that children be placed into particular orphanages uh, or for steering adoption cases to judges that they thought were friendly to them, you know, to get favorable guardianship orders, which was all you know, in pursuit of a, a child trafficking operation going on in Uganda. Um, you know, we've seen affiliates of American law firms that were involved with textbook criminals who were stealing billions of dollars uh, from their own people and funneling that money into anonymous shell companies in order to, to move and hide it in other parts of the world. Um, you know, maybe one particularly shocking example, the largest commercial real estate landlord in the city of Cleveland, where I'm from, was actually an oligarch who stole you know, billions of dollars from the second largest bank in Ukraine. And of all the places in the world where he thought to hide that money, uh, he moved some of it to Cleveland and bought up huge properties that subsequently you know, fell into disrepair. And obviously you know, now he's, he's been indicted by the Department of Justice. So he's the landlord. Uh, for a lot of this real estate in Cleveland, and it has really hollowed out those commercial centers, um, you know, has, has led to them just, you know, some overall issues that the Midwest and the Rust Belt are dealing with. You know, they were eager to accept money from any source, frankly, and they got taken advantage of. And so when we think of you know, foreign corruption or transnational corruption, we tend to think that it has impact somewhere else in the world. But those examples show that these are things that are actually affecting, you know, the places that we're from, our backyards, our neighbors, you know, down to like the cost of our, you know, the affordability of housing in the United States. So it's really making that connection that has been most shocking, I'd say. Absolutely. I mean, look at what you just said, there's a lot to dissect. But why on earth go to Cleveland, Ohio? No offense to your home town, but what's so special about Cleveland, Ohio to go and hide your money? Well, you know, frankly, the way often that these kleptocrats, these oligarchs, these corrupt officials work is 
you know, they're in positions of power and they have a lot of money, right? And so they have networks and access to some of the best attorneys, some of the best money managers, some of the best accountants, some of the best advisors that money can buy. And in the United States, you know, we have a program in about a dozen large cities where if someone tries to buy a piece of property with all cash, so they're not going through a bank, they're not getting a mortgage, um, and it's over a certain amount of money, then in those 12 cities or so, you know, information about that buyer has to be collected. So if they, you know, try to use an, an anonymous shell company to show up and buy a property, then, you know, information about who are actually the human beings behind that company has to be collected and reported to the federal government. But in Cleveland, they didn't have that program. And so, you know, I think a big part of this is this oligarch who stole so much money was able to look around the United States and, and know that places like Cleveland didn't have those rules on the books. And so they knew that it would be easier for them to be able to hide their money in a city like that. And, you know, frankly, I mean, you know, this, this, this oligarch bought this property right after the Great Recession or in the midst of the Great Recession. So prices oh, were cheap. Wow. Yeah, cities were very understandably desperate for investment and revenue. And so, you know, you, you put those things together and you could see why somebody who's looking to take advantage of a place like Cleveland found that be welcoming. And that's one of the reasons we got to have better rules around money laundering and real estate. This needs to be a nationwide program. It can't just be 12 big cities. We can't just be caring about money laundering and you know, Miami and, and New York City and, and, you know, Malibu. This is something that has hit the American Midwest, the heartland of America, smaller towns, smaller cities all across the country. And we've got to have rules that can help keep that dirty money out, um, regardless of where it tries to creep in. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I find super interesting is he bought this property right after the Great Recession and those properties skyrocketed. Traditionally speaking, when you're going to launder money, after everything is said and done, you lose about 30%. That's roughly, right? You know, with paying your third-party money launderers, like the people, the front setting it up, all the all the costs, it's about, you lose about a 30%. But you know what? You get to keep, you keep to keep 70%. Art and real estate are probably the only ones where you can re recoup your investment recoup that loss, and even make a profit. And for some reason, people just don't care about it. Like, the, the U.S. is interesting because the U.S. does act a lot like the moral high ground, but the U.S. does not really enforce things internally as be good outside, but inside is fine. We're, we don't need to look in-house. When in reality is you usually have to clean a lot in-house like you need to have a clean house before you you start casting moral judgment i mean no question I, I think one of the most important statements that have come out of the biden administration is uh, the secretary of the treasury janet yellen last year said that the united states is probably the number one destination for dirty money in the world now and having that <clears throat> realization let alone a you know a statement made so publicly I think you're right, compels us to look inward and to see what is the role that we are playing 
in the global movement of illicit funds. Um, I think what's also shown a lot of light on this, we had a, a bunch of examples, unfortunately, over the last couple of years of Russian oligarchs who have been able to hide their money in the United States with the help of what we call enablers of corruption. So with the help of you know, lawyers or accountants or folks who set up trusts uh, or who set up companies, you know, the, the sort of professional service provider class in the United States who currently by law do not have to do the kind of due diligence, the background checks. They don't have to figure out, you know, if, if a company is seeking their services, who are the actual human beings behind that company? They don't have to do the sort of background checks that would show whether or not those people are, say, under indictment for corruption in a foreign country. They don't have to flag suspicious transactions to the federal government. All of these things, of course, every bank in the United States has to do, but these enablers don't have to do. And so we had case after case come on the radar about, you know, there was a, there was a, a gatekeeper, an enabler who formed a company in Delaware that reportedly owned a $15 million mansion in DC that was linked to one of Putin's closest allies. Um, you know, there was a $14 million townhouse in New York City that was owned by a separate Delaware company. None of these would have been able to have been set up without somebody in the United States setting up that company. So I think between these just blockbuster exposés, like the, the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, um, and now instances of Americans facilitating the movement of dirty money and especially the movement of Russian oligarch money into the United States. It's really put this issue at the top of the agenda. And you know, I, I frankly just think it's something that people haven't paid as much attention to. But now that we have got this larger consciousness about how authoritarian and, and militaristic regimes like Russia are being financed, how they're able to maintain and grow their power, how their networks are dependent on them being able to grow their investments in the West. Now there's greater attention and scrutiny and frankly, you know, legislative response to this issue. And I think it is really seeing a moment, like a genuine moment of, of top interest, of bipartisanship, um, you know, better late than never, but we've seen the signs for decades, but um, there certainly has been a lot more engagement on this than at any other time that I can remember. Absolutely. And the reality is everything that you're saying is not a new trick. It's still the same game that has been pay played for years, decades, hell, maybe even centuries. But it seems like we're finally waking up to it. And I don't know if you probably have a theory as to why we've been so slow. I personally think that the fact that the world is getting so interconnected that it, that it's becoming unavoidable because it, it used to be easier to turn a blind eye. But I think it's it's the fact that we're so interconnected probably puts it more in your face and that they're starting to enter the United States, all these criminals. And affecting cost of living, affecting the day-to-day -day is probably what's making people pay attention. Um, but it's the game that has been played for ever. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, uh, <clears throat> you know, for as much as countries like Russia or China will disparage 
the United States and you know, obviously not hold the same democratic or human rights values as as we do. They certainly do enjoy putting their money here because they're looking for strong rule of law countries that have strong property rights and institutions to protect those property rights. Um, you know, they they consider the United States one of the best places to invest their money, even at the same time, you know, when they are disparaging, you know, what what we may be doing geopolitically and internationally. So at the end of the day, you know, people are 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 speaking through their money, right? And through their investments and the fact that they choose a place like the United States because of all the benefits that we offer um, and yet purport to also be ideologically or, you know, principally opposed to a lot of the the ways that we govern our society. I, I find that irony really striking now and that these people are are choosing to speak out of both sides of their mouth. But yeah, I mean, there's no question the, the war in, in Ukraine, um, you know, just the increased globalization, connectedness, um, a heightened concern about China and, and how their government is being financed and maintaining control. All of these um, are sort of swelling together in this moment where we know that we have to take seriously um, corruption and, and how corruption is used strategically, frankly, to advance a lot of these authoritarian interests. So let's let's bring it back to the gatekeepers and what to what you just said of how corruption is being used strategically. These gatekeepers are making a lot of money out of this and they know what they're doing, but they're using lobbying to stay unaccountable. Now in most countries of the world, lobbying is a form of corruption, is the trafficking of influences, but it is legal in the United States. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> lobbying is protected by the First Amendment. People have the right to petition their government. Um, you know, but it doesn't mean that uh, there aren't forces out there that uh, are engaging lobbyists to do things that I think the overwhelming majority of Americans would find stunning and immoral. So, you know, for example, when we're talking about enablers, it just happens to be the case that in the United States, a lot of the folks who set up companies or who register a company or who set up a trust and help somebody move money into that trust, that a lot of these folks happen to be lawyers um, because they have that level of expertise you know, they're just typically traditionally relied on to provide those kind of company services. And so what we've seen is that all sorts of criminals, whether it's drug cartels, Russian oligarchs, um, you know, organized crime across the board, when they are looking to set up a company, to register a company, to move money into a trust, they see the fact that American lawyers, you know, not only have this level of expertise, they, off, they also offer a level of confidentiality um, and attorney-client privilege, meaning that they're the way that they communicate with the attorneys, the things that they say to them, what they ask of them can generally not be um, you know, turned over to law enforcement because the attorney-client privilege. And then the folks who, who really understand how these laws work, they know that attorneys right now do not have to ask um, you know, when a client walks into their office, they don't have to conduct due diligence on them. They do not have to, if it's a company, figure out who the actual people are behind that company. 
They do not have to flag for the federal government um, transactions that they see as suspicious, you know, potentially criminal. And so you put all those factors together and American lawyers really stand amongst the crowd as, you know, the go to enablers for a lot of these criminals around the world. And in plenty of other countries, you know, if, if you went to the UK and you went into a, a lawyer's office there, they do have to conduct these uh, anti-money laundering um, procedures. They do have these laws on the books, but in the United States, we don't. And so that is, is one really important way that so much dirty money is able to be moved through the United States because lawyers don't have to ask these questions. And as a result, the clients don't have to tell. And it's that gray area of you know, plausible deniability, um, which allows, you know, as you said, so many folks in the United States to be able to turn a profit working with some of the worst people in the world. It is fascinating that you're saying what you're saying because money makes the world go round. And when you see sanctions designations, when you see a lot of things that the US government puts out, there's always a waiver for legal services. As long as it's a legal service, you can perform the service and you can help. So if you're a sanctioned oligarch, and you hire a U.S. law firm, the U.S. law firm can do whatever the hell you want. They can subcontract people on your behalf. It's covered by privilege. And the money is going from the oligarch account or from the sanctioned entity account into the U.S. law firm legally because there is an exclusion. And then all the money that's going from the U.S. law firm to any other person is legal because at the end of the day for those third parties it is the u.s law firm who is paying for those services so it's really interesting how money goes round and round and round in the in american law firms i'm not particularly sure if this also applies to european law firms i think there are some exceptions but they they do have the money laundering directives that makes it a, a little bit harder but at least with U.S. law firms, they are enablers and easily are moving money left and right. And nobody's complaining as long as their fees are getting paid. Because Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm a former public defender. I, I certainly believe very strongly that every everybody has the right to legal representation and all the benefits that comes along with that and all the protections that comes along with that. So... You know, there is absolutely a right, whether it's somebody who's being charged with a crime or who has been, um, you know, sanctioned and and is looking to appeal those like those criminal procedure roles of of American lawyers. No gripes with that at all. I mean, what I think where where this really gets interesting is that the services that we're talking about, these gatekeeper, these enabler services, like setting up a company, setting up a trust. Um, they don't have anything to do with, you know, legal training. You don't need a law license to go and register a company with the Secretary of State in your state. You don't need a law license to set up a trust. You don't have to go to law school. You don't have to pass the bar. It's just the fact that lawyers happen to do this, and they happen to have made this such an area of profitability 
that they don't want to have the kinds of rules. I should I should say not. This is a very divisive issue for the legal community, but you know the American Bar Association's position on this has been opposed to the Enablers Act legislation last year that would have paved the way for creating these sorts of anti-money laundering obligations when they engage in these activities like setting up a company, setting up a trust, et cetera. They were the, they were the biggest opposition on Capitol Hill to that bill. They're a divided house. There are a lot of attorneys and you know leadership within the ABA that understands this issue and finds it, frankly, pretty disgraceful that American attorneys have acquired this reputation, not only for doing this, but for opposing um, you know, reforms to address it. Um, but this, you know, I, I think of these as two very separate issues, like providing legitimate legal services and legal defense, legal representation for clients is one thing. But when a lawyer is providing what are basically financial and, and corporate services to their clients, that doesn't have anything to do with being a lawyer, frankly. You know, the, the best way I've heard about this um, is to think about a lawyer who happens to be a, an airplane pilot on the weekends, right? Who, who maybe flies a, a a plane for for recreation on the weekends? You know, there are all kinds of regulations that apply to pilots, the licensing and the safety protocols, right? And certainly, the lawyer can't claim, "Well, I'm an attorney, so I should play by different rules in that setting." So why is it that they can claim that there's some kind of different arrangement because you know when they're doing financial services for their clients? And that's where you know we think that a lot of what the ABA has has said about you know the idea of having anti money laundering requirements when when lawyers are performing these services is just extremely disingenuous, because they are taking this strong valuable tradition of attorney client privilege and of you know the right to to competent legal counsel and trying to muddy the waters in order to allow some of their members to continue making a buck by providing what are otherwise very discreet financial, totally non-legal services to clients. Absolutely. And I think you just summarized it perfectly because yes, that's the beauty of the American legal system. Everybody deserves just representation, but a lot of times the representation is not specifically for a case brought against them and that's where it gets really murky and and i and and that's just fascinating about the the american system in general but scott taking a step outward um from the united states but actually taking it global you look a lot of at government corruption and and you help a lobby against laws where there's bad actors to prevent corruption have you is there a particular case like on the international sphere that that really set a a, a tone or a really influenced it that late like that lobbying effort that you've been working on yeah well i think so one of the most exciting um opportunities i think for the anti-corruption community right now is to try and close what we call the authoritarian revolving door. And this is basically when former high-level uh, political or military figures in the United States, so you know, folks who, um, who, who ran government agencies, were top leadership um, in, in the federal governments, 
high level military officers, former admirals or generals. Um, there has been case after case, including some really great reporting done by the Washington Post and some research by our friends at the Project on Government Oversight, another civil society organization on this, that shows that a lot of these leaders, you know, after they leave their positions in the US government, are going to work, are going to lobby on behalf of, they're going to represent or otherwise help foreign governments, and in many cases, authoritarian governments whose interests may be totally adversarial to those of the United States. And yet, you know, under current law, these high level folks only have to wait one year after they leave those top posts before they can start working for foreign governments. And so basically what, you know, a foreign government will do is, you know, pay that person enough money or make enough of an arrangement that they just kind of have a, a desk waiting for them for a year, which frankly isn't that long. And then once that cooling off period, as it's called, is over, then they can get that former official to, to fill that role for them and start, you know, providing them with services. We have been working with a very legitimate, very deep bench of bipartisan um, organizations and Republicans and Democrats on the Hill to try and expand that um, rule from one year to three years. And actually last year, uh, Senators Cardin and Risch, so you know, top Democrat and Republican, came together to make it the law that every secretary of state going forward um, will not be able to provide any of those services for any foreign government for the rest of their lives. And for any uh, official at the State Department that is you know, senior enough level that they're they're confirmed by the Senate. So, you know, the, the heads of, of different parts of the State Department, every ambassador as well at the State Department uh, is not going to be able to provide those services to a foreign government for three years. And when it comes to six particularly hostile governments, talking about Russia and China, Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, et cetera, that, that they will never be able to do that. This is something that, you know, unfortunately, the United States has too much of our leadership going on to see this as the next stage in their careers, but it's something that every other country who is who's concerned about the same kind of good government, um, institutional integrity values that we have, they could be adopting these same policies. You know, they could be saying that if if you held a senior level post in their respective governments, that you cannot go on to work for a foreign government, especially one that is such at odds values wise. Um, like China and Russia. And that's, you know, it may be hard to reach consensus on a lot of other lobbying issues. There are, there are folks that do not want to close the revolving door between, say, government service and working in private industry in the United States. But when it comes to going and giving your service to foreign governments, that has been like a, a genuinely, um, a very legitimate bipartisan pathway forward. And we're hoping that we can really expand the rules that they created for the State Department and make that the law of the land for every um, department of the federal government. That would be amazing because I think sometimes we, we underestimate the power of connections. One quick phone call can make a lot of troubles go away. And when you have enemies of the state having that kind of access, or even just knowledge 
that high level officials may have of things that are coming down the pipeline that people are not aware of, it gives them an upper hand. It gives them that additional time to make up a strategy in the, in this big global chessboard that we're in. And it's a very fascinating initiative. And I think it's, it's amazing. And, and hopefully it does become the, the law of the land. And um, so that's, that's just amazing. Um, I wanted to circle back Scott to the first thing that you mentioned earlier about the adoption agency that was giving bribes to social welfares, like out in Uganda. Um, Do you think you can talk a little bit about, about that case in general and how, and how that whole scheme worked um, from the United States, like from Ohio all the way out to Uganda and having it be a child trafficking case. Um, I mean, I think the complexities of of corruption just you can't have one simple podcast episode to talk about corruption. Corruption in and of itself is so complicated and takes multiple shapes and forms. And it's not just government corruption. There is corruption in business. There is corruption in in the nonprofit world. There is corruption in child services and welfare. Like corruption can take place in so many shapes and, and sizes and and is highly linked to crime and and that particular case that you mentioned early on i think would be really fascinating for our audience to learn more about it yeah and the united states you know has 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 earned some very good um moral authority on this front writ large because the united states was actually the first country in the world that made it a crime for a U.S. company or, or you know, an American to go abroad and to offer or to give a bribe to a foreign government, right? They're, they're trying to win a contract or they're trying to win a license. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're bidding on a project. Um, the United States government was the first in the world to say that we are not going to be essentially exporters of corruption, that we are not going to allow our own people to undermine good governance around the world. Um, those types of laws, you know, foreign anti-bribery laws, have now been adopted by dozens of other countries. And yet, you know, the United States is um, one of two countries that actively enforce those laws. So plenty of other ones have it on the books, but um, Transparency International puts out a report um, regularly that looks at how those laws are being enforced and the latest edition of it made very clear that there's only two countries it's basically us and switzerland who are enforcing those rules against their companies going abroad and and bribing foreign officials but one thing that we're trying to 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 you know to do to address this problem as well you think about the situation of the ohio um, adoption agency right they were able to go and give bribes to officials in Uganda. But at the same time, you know, those Ugandan officials and other foreign officials around the world, you know, they may be able to say to an American or an American company, hey, you want to do business here? Here's the cost of doing business. You know, I need X amount of money, right? They're demanding a bribe payment or they're accepting that bribe payment. And the strange thing is, is that while we make it a crime for American companies to give that bribe, we don't make it a crime for a foreign official to shake down the American company for a, for a bribe. 
And so there's a real imbalance of incentives out there where, you know, these foreign officials, they may know that they're not going to be prosecuted by their home governments if they demand a bribe. And there's research out there on this from the OECD that basically, you know, 80% of the time that a foreign official demands or accepts a bribe, they are not criminally prosecuted in their home countries. And so when they don't face any real threat of um, accountability, then we think it falls upon you know, the United States government to be able to protect their own citizens, to be able to protect their own companies from bribe demands. And so you know, we have been pushing for a law that would make it a crime for a foreign official to demand or accept a bribe from an American or an American company in basically in a business setting. And this gives the Department of Justice here the ability to go after the foreign officials who are endangering Americans, who are, you know, creating, you know, unfair um, business climates for American companies, you know, who are distorting their markets, who may be, you know, causing environmental damage by, um, you know, selling, um, you know, rights to to use parts of their natural resources to the highest bidder. We think we got to close that gap, and a bill to do so was actually passed by the Senate. Um, recently, bipartisan bill uh, supported by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and, you know, every major foreign anti-corruption organization you could think of in the United States. It really is an opportunity to help balance that playing field and to give the United States another tool to be able to hold, um, you know, foreign corrupt actors accountable. That is fascinating. But... What do you do in the instances where we have, like, example, a, a country like Venezuela that's plagued with corruption at all levels and corruption is the norm? How do you get adoption from a country like that? Yeah, well, it's, in, you know, this is one of the values of the Transparency International Network. You know, we're in 120 plus countries around the world. And so, we actually reached out to our chapter in Venezuela and we asked them about this law and what they thought about it. And they were one of, I think at this point, a dozen or so countries that have gone on the record publicly with us and put out statements of support calling for this law because just like you said, corruption is so endemic there and, and reaches such high levels that while you know, their government may be able to go after more petty corruption, low-level corruption. It is just impossible for them to hold some of their senior leaders accountable for corrupt acts. And so they are basically saying, you know, we welcome and understand the value of having, you know, the U.S. government um, play a role to protect their citizens in a way that could bring Venezuelan senior officials to justice. I mean, I mean, they're basically saying that it is so intractable that it would be a significant of significant value to have the United States be able to have jurisdiction over these folks that shake down American companies for bribes, and that that could actually disrupt the corrupt networks that they have in their own country. So, you know, they know this dynamic far better than we do. And and that is the way that they've responded to this idea is they, you know, they welcome the, the role that the United States government could play there, given the levels of corruption they have. So in other words, 
they want for an intervention. It's it's tricky, but I mean, it's it sometimes it is necessary to have an external force come in and help you clean house, and then let that clean house stay clean. Um, that's really fascinating that that your TI chapter down in, in Venezuela um, was actually excited about this. That's that's really fascinating to hear. Um, in your personal opinion, is there a particular region that you think is the most challenging, or is, or is, let's not say the most challenging, that it is the one that is struggling the most with adopting anti-corruption measures? Well, every year, Transparency International puts out um, the Corruption Perceptions Index, or the CPI, as we call it, and that. It basically attaches a number and a ranking to 180 countries and territories around the world, you know, where um, basically the the lower the number, um, the, the the worse corruption in that country and the higher the number, the, the cleaner the government. It's it's, uh, you know, basically an index of indexes, so it pulls from about a dozen other uh, metrics and surveys that collect information that speak to um, the perception of corruption in those countries. And, you know, unfortunately, the landscape across the entire world is not great right now. There's been a lot of stagnation. I want to say the average score is uh, 43 for the entire world, so not good. Um, and that we have seen, you know, some gains, but a lot of decline uh, over the last decade or so. So, you know, it is not the case that you know, we're rolling in on the wheels of inevitability here and, and we can rely on time um, as, as enough to, to improve, um, you know, clean government and good governance around the world. So there are certainly countries and parts of the world that tend to score worse uh, on a year after year basis. You know, you can imagine countries that are, are struggling with outright conflict, um, with crisis in government. Um, you know, countries like Somalia and Afghanistan and Venezuela and North Korea, places that have have some very major security um, and economic development issues there. It, it's you know unfortunate that, that that they also score poorly on the corruption perceptions index. But I'll tell you that the countries that tend to score, you know, arguably the best on those rankings. <laughs> are are implicit in these global themes. You know, the United States may score comparatively better, you know, than most of the world, but it, we also have plenty of instances of how the United States financial system has served as a laundromat for dirty money all around the world. I mentioned Secretary Yellen's statement that we are perhaps the go-to destination for dirty money. Um, you know, the Nordic countries or Germany and, and Denmark um, other high-ranking countries on that index, they have also had their own scandals um, with dirty money and, and the proceeds of crime and corruption moving throughout their banking system and elsewhere. So there is an absolutely integral role that, quote-unquote, the West plays in, um, you know, how we conventionally, maybe traditionally, simplistically think about corruption in some of these places that 
tend to score the worst. I don't think you could separate those, even if you know the perception of clean government happens to be better for these you know Western countries. That does not mean that they do not play an essential role in the movement of of dirty money from you know poorer parts of the world to wealthier parts of the world. You can't have one without the other. And so we're talking about looking inwards. You know, we're talking about humility and the role that the United States plays in this broader system. And I think we've got to have that as a piece of a larger puzzle to understand that it is not the case that we can go abroad and, and talk to people with some level of authority about how corruption works and, and you know, um, point the finger elsewhere. We are part of that problem. There are folks in the United States government who follow this, who know that we have gaps in our laws that allow this money to be stolen from other parts in the world. And until we do something about it, we can't claim any moral authority high ground on this question. So are you saying that the better ranked on the CPI index, the more likely you are a money laundering machine? Is that what you're saying? I mean, you know, <laughs> I can't say it's, we'll just say that, again, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these kleptocratic governments like to move their money into economies that are relatively stable, that are relatively secure, have strong property rights, et cetera. And so I don't think it's surprising that a lot of this dirty money happens to flow through what we sure otherwise tend to ascribe higher scores to for cleaner countries. But that relationship is um, well evidenced and consistent enough to say that one cannot truly exist without the other. I was teasing you earlier, but but everything that you just said does make a lot of sense. Um, the more stable the government is, the rule of law, the inherent security and rights that come with that, it makes it attractive. It just means your investment will not be touched. Your investment will be safe versus having it in a place where it's volatile. The government can stick its hand into it. Like today you're part of the government, but tomorrow you're not. So having your assets elsewhere, having your assets in a place where they're safe is just a logical thing. Not necessarily because it means like, oh, this is the place that I'm going to launder my money. It's just it is a natural thing to want to protect your own goods and your own assets. It just happens to be um, that there's a very particular correlation going on and and it's fascinating because tying it back into what we were talking earlier and since the beginning if you have strong anti-corruption laws if you have strong anti-money laundering laws and you actually make all these due diligence requirements a must not just because oh it only applies if if you're going to new york city or it only applies if you're going to a dc or somewhere like that then it forces the whole society to be more conscious and at least ask questions. I think a lot of times just human nature is to be overly trusting and just say, oh, you're a referral or I just met you. You look nice. You, I got a good feeling off you. And you you trust without verifying. And, and I believe that you need to verify first and then trust. Um, I mean, every people run background checks on their employees. Why not? actually check on your business partners or the people that that are even hiring you. This is not yeah. a bad practice. When you're in a position to be able to be moving huge amounts of money, especially from overseas clients, 
into the United States financial system. Like when you have that level of potential risk for money laundering, and there should be a corresponding requirement that you have enough safeguards to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of being exploited like that to to you know um, basically be facilitating a crime um, elsewhere. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. There has to be, you know, I think about this as like the the canon and the culture, right? The canon is the law. We do need these requirements. We do need enablers of corruption to have anti-money laundering requirements. But at the same time, you got to change the culture around this and to understand that, you know, this isn't going to upend the American legal system. They've been doing this in the UK for a while. Uh, it's not going to fundamentally change the way that we we do business in the United States to have to have these um, safeguards built in. And I think institutionalizing that culture through things like this, talking about the issue, working with folks in the private sector, you know, um, to be able to get uh, just a, a broader sense of of how this impacts people and to understand that this is the right thing to do is is just as important as being able to put pen to paper and pass legislation that makes it happen. Absolutely. And changing culture is is not a process that happens overnight. Western culture has a long-standing tradition of laws, of respecting the rule of law, of even having a strong law enforcement that you can trust. There are other regions of the world, particularly in developing countries, where laws are a guideline. You don't really have to follow the law. And sometimes you don't even trust law enforcement because law enforcement could be in cahoots and law enforcement is asking you for a bribe. You need protection? Give me a bribe first. Um, I've heard stories of in, in third world countries of people calling the cops and the cops t t calling the cops and say, hey, somebody's breaking into my house. And the cops uh, are saying like, sure, we will go and help, but could you give us gas money? <laughs> because they didn't have funding. And that was just like, okay, they 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 didn't have funding, but there are other times where the cop says like, you're you're not part of my security circuit. Uh, if you want to be part of the security circuit, you need to pay extra, even though they are being paid by the by the government and quote unquote your local taxes are paying for it. But that is not really a thing, and this is why I think changing a culture is not something that's going to happen overnight. Do you have places where you have these drastic instances of cops asking for bribes or law enforcement or, I mean, government, you know, just pocketing whatever they can and other instances where you have true law enforcement and all you have to do is minor tweaks, just a little bit more conscientiousness. So I think the path to anti-corruption is is a journey. Some people are closer to being 100% like corruption free and hopefully money laundering free, but other places still have a long way to go. And I think everybody should be learning from each other and finding ways to stop it. And I think Transparency International is just one of those groups that's doing an amazing job. And obviously that includes yourself because you, you're quite a leader in this world. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I'm always humbled when I when I go abroad or when I talk to uh, folks with our chapters around the world, or you know, activists, whistleblowers, folks who, who are working on this in a very much more visceral, much more day to day, much more 
consequential. We have the privilege of being in the United States of thinking about this quite differently. And so um, I'm always in awe at what, you know, that kind of bravery looks like in parts of the world where um, standing up for, for good government can be a life or death or livelihood um, matter. Uh, you know, I, we, have, we have a tremendous privilege in this country to be able to be viewing and talking about corruption in the way that we do compared to um, most of the world, frankly. And so I think we have a moral obligation to use that opportunity and that privilege to try and take action and, and you know, provide assistance to, to the folks who need it the most. Absolutely. Scott, before I let you go, could I ask you for some parting words of wisdom on your end? Like, what do you think the future is? Like, what do you think is the route to follow? Hmm. Well, I mean, we've got a, we've got a big opportunity coming up in December, actually, because the United States is going to be hosting the United Nations Convention Against Corruption meeting. It's called the Conference of State Parties. This is basically all of the countries that have signed on to the major you know, international agreement on corruption, uh, the UN Convention Against Corruption. They're going to be meeting in Atlanta um, this December. It's going to be bringing together, you know, just dozens of countries around the world, activists, CSOs, journalists, um, academics, in order to be able to talk about these issues and to spotlight these issues. And the fact that the United States is hosting it this year, we hope, means that they will be making some, some new and important commitments about how they're going to lead in the fight against foreign corruption, um, that they're going to be helping to connect a lot of these dots that we've been talking about domestically and internationally. Um, that they're going to be continuing to prioritize this issue. You know, I've got that those dates circled on my calendar. Um, I think we can be pretty proud so far of how uh, this administration has prioritized and championed anti-corruption issues. And, you know, what's coming down the pike in December is, is another opportunity for them to to up that game, to deepen that commitment, and to and to make sure that that fighting foreign corruption continues to be seen as such an important piece of you know the overall foreign policy international and domestic agendas of the united states absolutely and that is so well said and let's hope that december brings upon important change but but as well that we continue to change and improve gradually with baby steps scott if anybody wants to reach out or continue the conversation what's the best way to contact you yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott Greytak, S-C-O-T-T-G-R-E-Y-T-A-K, or at my email address, which is sgreytak at transparency.org. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much again for, for coming on board. This was such a fascinating episode. We'll hope to have you again soon, probably after the, the December event. And just thank you. This whole conversation was just super enlightening and I'm sure that our audience is going to have just going to go nuts just listening to everything you said and trying to dissect everything. It's it's a fascinating topic in and of itself and and corruption is just one of those things that is always there. It never sleeps and you got to be on the lookout for it. So Yeah, my pleasure. I hope to hope to be able to have some good news for you on the other side of a conference in December. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Lurking in the Fog. And as always, if you're thinking of entering the fog, don't hesitate to shoot us a hoot.
Should you ever be faced with a situation in which you need any form of investigative assistance or suspect there may be some illicit actors or activity at play, don't hesitate to shoot us a hoot. Owl Consultancy Group is a global corporate investigative firm dedicated to uncovering the facts, exposing evil, and diving deep. We provide the actionable intelligence you need to make the best decisions possible. Disclaimer. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of OWL Consultancy Group. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The OWL Consultancy Group name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service.